Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we may see wondrous things from your law. I pray that we would be diligent to study and rightly divide the word of truth. pray that we'd have a Berean mindset to check these things out, to make sure they're true. I pray that we would not forget this law as we read it, but to really truly apply it and let it cut to the heart in all ways and all things. You are good and do good. And Lord, lots of sickness going around. I pray your hand of health and encouragement and strength to be upon all in your name. Amen. Psalms chapter 1. It's always exciting and slash nervous at the same time to start a new study in a book. Certain times I know exactly where I feel like we should go next. Like on Wednesday nights, I knew that we were supposed to go into the book of Numbers as soon as Mark was done. Um, Psalms was one of this one study where I was really praying, saying, Lord, what do you want to do? Because this is quite the book. 150 chapters. 150 chapters. I did some quick uh, math here before we got into this study this morning. And if we take off a time for Resurrection Sunday, if we take a time off for Christmas, doing one chapter a week, we will get done March 5th of 2023. And that's, uh, that ain't happening, folks. I'm telling you that right now. I'm going to be straight up with you. I don't know exactly how we're going to teach through this. I do know that we are going to do Psalm 1 today, and we'll see what the Lord does from there. We have gone through Psalms a couple times in the past, but we've gone through them uniquely. The first time that we went through Psalms was probably about 11 years ago, and the way we did it was we took the different topics of Psalms. And so, like, if you talked about the Psalms of repentance, you did a couple Psalms on repentance. Psalms of praise, you did some Psalms on praise. We did an overview. Then about 10 years ago, we did a study that I absolutely loved where we took the titles of the Psalms and then we then correlated it to David's life of what he was going through. If you would take a look real quick at like the beginning of Psalm chapter 7. It says, a meditation of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. So then we would go study out what happened with Cush, the Benjaminite, and then look at the Psalm and kind of correlate it together. And that was a fun study. But we still didn't cover all the Psalms there. So we're going to start at least in Psalm 1 today. We're going to see where the Lord takes it. And March 5th of 2023, we will be getting done with the book of Psalms. The word Psalms means praise, it means melody, and it's understood that it's supposed to be done with music. Take a look at the beginning, if you will, of Psalm chapter 6. To the chief musician with stringed instruments on an eight-stringed harp, a Psalm of David. Take a look at the beginning of Psalm 5. To the chief musician with flutes, a Psalm of David. You see that it has this understanding of a musical score. If any of you have any type of musical background, you know what I'm talking about. You look at the music, you see the temple, you see the key that it's in, and it gives you a little bit of an understanding of that. You see that a lot of these songs were that idea of to be set to music. Now, who is the chief musician? To be quite honest, it really doesn't matter. Some people look at the chief musician, and they look at the chief musician being God. He is the chief musician. Sometimes it would be literally the chief musician that David had this string of Levites that would lead in praise and worship. So David would feel led by the Lord to do this, and he would send it then to the chief musician, who would then compose it and go from there. Now, Psalms. I love this quote by John Calvin describing Psalms. An anatomy of every part of the human soul. That's Psalms, an anatomy of every part of the human soul. Every emotion is in the book of Psalms. There is sorrow, there is joy, there is anger, there is rage, there is despair, there is depression. It is every emotion. Whatever emotion you are going through, you can find a psalm to meet you right where you are at. And in that time of life, God's word will speak to you. There are times of just flat-out praise. There's times of thanksgiving. There's times of God, where are you? There's times of anger. There's psalms where it says that they want to take the heads of babies and bash them against rocks. That's in there. 
Now, the reason I bring this up is because if you're like me, sometimes you have quite the pendulum in your life. You have moments of where, God, you are so amazing and so great, and I want to serve you and love you and send me to any place in the world. Five minutes later, it's like, Lord, I don't know if this is true. I don't know what I'm doing. And this pendulum goes back and forth and back. Psalms is the honesty of those emotions that we go through as human beings. And that's why I think it is so important for us to be in the book of Psalms. I I encourage you, if you don't have a part of your daily devotion in Psalms, I would encourage you to look into Psalms. I, I read a Psalm every day, and I really try to study it. I read it through once, and I just read it through straight through to get the idea of it. Then I go back and I read it through a second time, and I pray through it to really stop and say, Lord, what do you want me to do and how do I apply this and pray through it? Then I try to go back through a third time with a commentary and say, now, Lord, I really want to understand it, to understand the setting of it, the theology of it. What is it? There's so much in here with these. And God has told us to study these out. He asks us to. Ephesians 5.19 says this, Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. We're supposed to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're supposed to encourage each other with this. If you're going through a difficult time, it's like, hey, there's this great verse in psalm. Here's this psalm that really encourages me, and I would hope you would do the same to me. And you're supposed to do that privately and also with each other. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. We're supposed to teach each other with this, admonish each other with this, warn each other in spiritual songs and psalms. James 5.13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. It's right there. Teach each other, encourage each other, sing these, praise these. What an absolutely blessing it is. Psalms are over the entire Bible. The book of Psalms covers a thousand years. The first Psalm that we know of is from Moses that's in the book of Psalms. And it goes all the way up to the exile period. A thousand years of history is in the Psalms. And it's all over the New Testament. One source said this, that there's over 90 references in the New Testament to the book of Psalms. Over 60 specific Psalms are mentioned in the New Testament. That's a lot. Now, contrary to popular opinion, Psalms is not the longest book in the Bible. It does have the most chapters, 150. But it's not the longest book in the Bible. It is interesting, though, when Peter did his message in Acts 2 to start the church out, he quotes from Psalms. He quotes from Psalm 16. He quotes from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is amazing in itself. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce says that there's 27 allusions and references in the New Testament to one psalm. Psalm 110. 27 times it's alluded to in the New Testament. Think that through. Jesus himself quotes from Psalms 11 times. He uses it to do for scripture rebuttals. He does it in his trial. In fact, when he's on the cross, he's hanging on the cross looking at physical, emotional, and spiritual pain and death. What does he do? He quotes Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So there's this amazing depth when it comes to Psalms. David wrote a lot of them. He didn't write all of them. Depends how you number it, 73 to 75 of them. Moses wrote some. Sons of Korah, which were Levites, wrote some. Solomon wrote some. And we'll get into all that as we go through there. It's divided up into five books, which we'll talk about in a little bit too. Because it's easy to look at Psalms and kind of says it looks a little scattered. You know, like, why is it there? God in his infinite wisdom planned these out the way that he did. What type of Psalms are there? Depends who you ask. Ask 100 people, 100 opinion. I've read online, some people say there's three types, four types, five types, eight types. For our teaching style, we're going to go with there's five types of psalms. 
First type is a hymn. It's just flat out praise to God. God is just good and I want to praise him. Please remember that. We, we've, we've lost this aspect of worship. And when I say we, I mean the body of Christ in general in the world. We look at worship as coming in and saying, I want the song to be in this tempo, this style, this volume level, with these words, this arrangement. And we make worship and be about us. We say things like this. Oh, I really liked the worship. Worship is about you and God. And God is just good. The worship is just for God. So therefore, it's not about musical styles, preferences. It's about, Lord, are you getting the glory? And those are the psalms of hymns, just praise. There also are psalms of thanksgiving, where you stop and say, Lord, I just want to thank you for what you're doing. Those are in there. There are songs of lament. How long, O Lord? Where are you, O Lord? And the dark, depressing, discouraging moments of life, where if you could take your words and put them to song, it's there. There's also psalms of wisdom, which are teaching, and the last group is just a potluck. There's psalms of history, messianic prophecies, repentance, anger, and we'll get to those as well, too. So with that being said, we're going to start in Psalm 1, and we're going to teach through this one, and we'll see what the Lord does, and we will go from there. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish." For us to understand this psalm, we've got to start with the last verse and work backwards. The key verse is verse 6. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Those two words are going to keep our study going here for the book of Psalms. Righteous, ungodly. Some of your translations may say godly for righteous. Some of your translations may say wicked for ungodly. But it's the idea of the righteous and the ungodly. Those are our two themes. That word for righteous, it just means to be made right. That's what it means. To be made right, to be just, it means to be correct. Now, please note, it does not mean that you are right. Okay, It means that you have been made right. You can be righteous and not be right, and you can be right and not be righteous. This is not a mindset of, I am right, I am correct. No, I am made righteous. From the inner being, I have been made right in the eyes of God. That's what it means to be righteous. It's used over a hundred times in Psalms. We need to understand this word before we move on. Because it goes right with the other word, ungodly, wicked. It's used over 80 times in the book of Psalms. This idea of you're the righteous or you're ungodly. This is the gospel message. The idea that I am unrighteous and I have become righteous. Build on this with me. Go with me now to Psalm 9. See, imagine standing before the judge. Do you want a judge that's righteous? Or do you want a judge that's mercy? See, now I want righteousness for everybody else in the world. But for me, I want mercy. Because the reality is this. I have no righteousness. Take a look at Psalm 9. This is the problem, folks. Look at verse 4. You have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. That sounds really good when you're dealing with people you don't like. Lord, judge them in righteousness. Jump down a little bit, same chapter, verse 8. He shall judge the world in righteousness. Yes, Lord, judge the world in righteousness, but just not me. Because here's the issue. You serve a righteous God. He judges righteously. But the problem is Romans 3. 
There is no one who does good, no, not one. There is no one who is righteous, which is from the Psalms, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. So the problem is I serve a righteous God who judges in righteousness, but the problem is I'm not righteous. Folks, that's the gospel. The gospel is I'm not right, and I'm trying to serve a God who is right, and then he has to make me right. So stay in Psalm 9. What's the answer? Verse 9. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name, who put their trust in you, for you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He that knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us so that way we could become the righteousness of God. Just be careful when presenting the gospel. And don't take this the wrong way. The gospel is not God loves you and wants you to be in heaven with him. That's an element of the gospel that's true. The gospel message is this. I am not righteous. I am going to hell, and the righteous God needs to judge me. So therefore, the righteous God sent his son who became sin for me so I could become righteous, and now I can go to heaven. You have to present the element of I am not right, and I have to become right through Christ to enter heaven. That's the good news of the gospel. So when you see here in Psalm 1 the idea of righteousness, you have to understand the depth of that word. To be made right in God through Christ, the only way, sacrifice for sins. So when we read that word righteousness through the rest of the book of Psalms, understand the depth of that word. It is so vitally important. So now we can take this psalm now, because God knows the righteous that have been made right through Christ by him. He knows the way of the ungodly, which are going to perish, eternity, damnation, hell. Now, I don't know about you. I want to be on the side of the righteous. So, Lord, what does that look like? Now, let's jump back to verse 1. Blessed is the man. Got to stop right there real quick, the word blessed. Some of your translations actually say happy. Literally means, oh, how happy. That same Hebrew word in other parts of the Bible is actually translated happy or happiness. There is a happiness, there is a blessedness in doing what this psalm says. I don't know about you guys, I want to be blessed, I want to be righteous, and I want to be happy. So therefore, let's really pay attention to these six verses. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Note the progression right there. Walking, standing, sitting. Walking, there's action. By the end, you're sitting. This is the progression of falling away from the Lord. It does not happen overnight. You do not fall away from the Lord overnight. It is a slow progression, a slow fade, slowly moving away from the Lord. You don't backslide in one day. You go from walking to standing to sitting. I'm reading through Genesis right now, and it talks about Lot, and Lot gets himself in trouble in Sodom. And the Bible says, first off, that Lot saw Sodom. Then it says Lot lived near Sodom. Then finally, Lot lives in Sodom. That's the slow progression, folks. Careful. Check yourself and just stop and see spiritually. Are you going from walking to standing to sitting and the slow progression of moving farther away from the Lord? Now, here's the problem with this. For many of us here, we have built up so much momentum with the Lord over the years, we don't notice the slow fade. We don't notice that all of a sudden we're not reading like we used to. We don't pray like we used to. 
Maybe we used to go to every Sunday, every Wednesday, now it's just every Sunday. Maybe it used to be every Sunday, now it's just a couple times a month. Maybe every now and then it's like, God, oh, I forgot, I didn't even read today. I didn't even pray before my meal day. It's just this slow moving away from the Lord. Because what happens is for many of us, we've grown up in church, we build up so much spiritual momentum in our life, we don't realize that the engine is no longer running and we're running on the momentum that we've built up over the years. One of my favorite things that my dad used to do as a kid, we only used to live a couple miles from church, and he would do this every now and then. We'd leave church, and he would turn on our road, and as he would turn on our road, he would kind of floor the car for a second, then shut it off. And then he would kind of get dramatic and play it up, and are we going to get home? The car doesn't, you know, isn't running or anything like that. You know, I got married at 19. I was still excited at 19. It's like, oh, dad, do it again, you know? So anyway, <laughs> the momentum would get us home. And it was always just this fascinating picture of this momentum taking us home. Even though the car's not running, there's no engine, there's no nothing doing any power, but you have built up enough momentum to get you home. Spiritually speaking, I think that happens to a lot of us. You've spent so much time in church, so much time in worship, so much time in prayer over your years of life that you don't realize that the engine quit running six months ago. But things are going okay. Right, but you're going from walking to standing to sitting. You're going from being outside of Sodom to in Sodom, and you don't even realize it. It's a dangerous progression that you've got to be careful about. What does it look like? Well, the first one, don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Amen. Folks, a lot of times we walk in the counsel of the ungodly. I, I see this a lot as a pastor. People come to me. And they have a situation, they have a problem. Pastor, can we sit down? Can we talk? Sure, we can talk. Okay, here's the problem. Here's the situation. Okay, I'm just going to tell you right now. I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. There'll be a pause. They'll be like, well, you know, I, I was talking to Fred at work. Fred thinks I should do this. Who's Fred? Is Fred seeking the scriptures? Is Fred praying over you? Is Fred trying to give you godly advice? Or is, well, Fred's been through a lot. Fred's on his 10th marriage. He knows a lot about marriage. Fred doesn't know a lick about marriage if he's on his 10th marriage. we got to be careful here. Be careful of taking the counsel of the ungodly. Just because you know these people, you work with these people, you may live with these people, these people may be your family, your friends, your relatives, and you know them since kindergarten. If they're ungodly, they're not giving you counsel. Be careful of walking in the counsel of the ungodly. So what counsel should you be walking in then? I'm glad you asked. Psalm 119.24. Your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. God's word is your counselor. Isaiah 9 verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. You want a counselor? You have God's word, and you have Jesus Christ. You have the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in you if you're born again and saved. What other counsel is needed right there? Do not go to the counsel of the ungodly. That'd be advice from the world, advice from TV, advice from magazines. Be careful of that. Let it be biblically based, sound, godly counsel. Next one, standing in the path of sinners. We've gone from walking in the counsel of the ungodly, now standing in the path of sinners. Every day you're on a path. You may not think like that, but you are. You're going to get up in the morning and you're going to take a path somewhere. That path's going to take you to work. That path's going to take you to school. That path is going to take you around your house as you serve and minister at home. You are on a path. What path are you on? I hope you're not on the path of sinners. 
What path should we be on? Psalm 1611. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's a good path to be on, folks. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the path that we want to be on. Psalm 1836. You enlarged my path under me so my feet do not slip. God says, I will make your path safe, flat, and smooth. That's the blessing of being in God's path. Lastly, Psalm 119.35. Psalm 11935. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. So God's word is my counselor, and God's word is my path. That's the focus and the goal that we're looking for. Last one, sitting in the seat of the scornful. That word for scornful is where we get our word mocker, scoffer. Now this is a big word, folks. And if you were with us in our study in the book of Proverbs, you understand how deep the word scoffer is. If you weren't with us, I encourage you to go get a CD of it or listen to it. It's from the October 7th, 2018 message. October 7th, 2018. We spent a whole message talking about what a scoffer is. Some of you work with scoffers. You live with scoffers. You may have raised scoffers. You may be married to a scoffer. You go to church with scoffers. They are extremely difficult personalities and people to deal with. They're tough. They are a struggle. And the problem is, verse 1, you do not want to sit in the seat of the scornful of the scoffer. If you weren't with us, go back October 7, 2018 and grab a copy of that. Once again, note the progression. Walking, standing, sitting. Watch where you get your counsel from. Watch the path you choose. Watch where you choose to sit. These are dangerous places to be that will come back to bite you. What should we be doing? Verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. That's a deep verse, folks. Don't don't just skip over that verse. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Did you catch God's only asking you to be in the word two times a day? Day and night. That's all he's asking you. Just be in it day and night. That, that verse is so deep, so life-changing, it's almost difficult to digest when you truly try to grasp what this verse is trying to say. It's almost like where you have that meal in front of you and you eat it to the point of where it hurts. And then as you stop and you look back and you're like, yeah, but it was so good, it was worth it. To truly grasp this verse and to digest this verse of what God is trying to say here It is really one of those life-changing verses. It truly is. I take this verse as it says, that my delight should be in the law of the Lord and I should meditate day and night on it. Joshua 1.8 says the same thing. This book of law should not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that's written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and you have good success. Now, this to me, and I can only speak for me on this, if I got free time, I want to be in the Word. And that means I need to let things go. I don't need to check the weather for the 10th time. I don't need to check the headlines. I don't need to check the sports scores. I don't need to see what they're doing here or what they're doing there. I can let that stuff go. Now, I want to be careful. I'm not turning this into some legalistic, super spiritual, every single moment of the day. I still play with my kids. I still talk with my wife. I still eat. And there's still times where you say, oh, I wonder what happened with this. But if given an opportunity... Why would I not choose to delight myself in the law of the Lord and meditate in them day and night? Why in that moment of boredom 
Why do I have to grab the remote, the, my phone, the internet, and say, oh, I'm just going to find something to titillate the flesh for a little bit? Where I have the word of God in front of me, where I could just stop and say, Lord, more time to read, more time to study, and I'm going to delight myself in this and meditate in it day and night because there's a blessing that comes out of this rather than some quick little fleshly thing. And if you may stop, may stop and say, well, see, James, this is the problem with Christianity. You're, you're, you're making it sound like it's this work, this have to, and it's not fun. No, you don't understand. Verse 2, I delight in it. Well, it's fun for you. It's not fun for me. Maybe because we have trained ourselves to be delighted by the world. Maybe we have trained ourselves to find delight in things that aren't eternal, and that's something that we, and I will say myself, I need to learn to die to, to say, Lord, your word is going to bring me more joy and peace than anything else I could ever imagine. So why would I not want to plant myself in this book when I have the time to do it? What's it mean to meditate? I like what David Guzik says here. In Eastern meditation, the goal is to empty the mind. This is dangerous because an empty mind may present an open invitation to deception or demonic spirit. But in Christian meditation, the goal is to fill your mind with the word of God. This can be done by carefully thinking about each word and phrase and applying it to oneself and praying it back to the Lord. Thinking about each word and phrase and applying it oneself and praying it back to the Lord. That idea of, Lord, I am chewing on this. I'm meditating on this. I want to build on this for a second. Can you go with me to Ezra 7? Ezra 7. As you're going to Ezra 7, I, I type these sheets up for me. And I, and I like to put scriptures in my car. I like to put it on my bathroom mirror. I put them by my bed there. And this is one that I was doing a study on Ezra 7. At the top of the sheet, I have uh, Psalm 1-2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. His law meditates day and night. And I, and I have this quote about what it means to meditate. The word meditate in the Hebrew implies that he exercises a deep serious and affectionate thoughtfulness about it. And by this, it appears that his delight is in it. For what we love, we love to think about. Think about that for a second. What you love is what you take your mind to. That's just a simple human nature. If I hate something like it makes me nauseous and disgusted, I don't want to think about it. But what I like, I think about. And I meditate day and night. Not seldom, not slightly, but diligently and constantly. Let me stress again, this is not a have to. This is not some legalistic by law, by my righteousness, salvation, I do this. No, this is something where I stop and say, Lord, I really believe this. Good comes out of it. Look here with me with Ezra. Ezra 7, verse 10. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra had prepared his heart. Some of your translations. He determined. He devoted his heart to seek the law of the Lord. I just want to break this down from something I read. For Ezra had prepared his heart. He had set his mind and affections upon it, made it his chief business to seek the law of the Lord, to search and to find out the true sense and meaning of it, and then to learn what sins or errors were to be reformed and what duties were to be performed, and to do it and to teach in Israel. The order of these things in this verse is very observable. First, he endeavors to understand God's law and word, not for curiosity, but to order to practice it. Next, he practices what he understood, made it his doctrine. Then he earnestly desires and labors to instruct others that they also might know and do it. That word meditate is a deep, deep word. 
It is more than just casually reading the verse. It's more than just saying, oh, that's a neat verse. I like that. It is stopping and saying, I'm going to plant myself on this verse for a while, and I'm going to chew on this. Now, does that mean you do that for every single verse? No. I, with the different readings I do, I have readings that sometimes are that. They're, they're like, I just stop at a verse and I'll chew on that verse and pray over that verse and look up everything I can on that verse. And there's other times where I'm reading and I'll read an entire book at once. You're just you're reading it. You're getting the context of it. I don't want you to think and stop and say, boy, every time I read, then I'm supposed to just, one word, okay, I wonder what the word is means. Probably means is. I'm just going to take that as a guess. It means is. But there's a depth to this, and Lord, I want to know what it is. I got some devotions that I like to read, and it only takes a minute or two to read them. But it may take a minute or two to read them, but you spend the rest of the day chewing on them. You just keep thinking about what it says, and it, it meditates. I, I remember watching cows chewing their cud. And it's absolutely gross if you stop and think about what's really going on, so don't analyze the, the science of it. But it's that idea of just constantly going over it again and again and again. So you read it in the morning, and the rest of the day you chew on it. You find yourself going back to it and just meditating on it, praying over it. And you'll delight in it. Folks, it'll change your life. Go back to verse 1. Blessed is a man. Oh, how happy. I want to be happy. How will I be happy? By delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating day and night. It means learning to die to certain things, and that's hard to do. Pray for me as I pray for you, which is a nice time to stop real quick and remind you that we have those prayer uh, sheets back there. And if we're out, I'll make some more copies for the next six weeks. We have different passages we're praying over, different things that the Lord has given us as a church. We'd like to start out the first 40 days of the year doing this. Put it by your bed, put it by your fridge. Pray over it there to really see the blessing of it. And if we run out, we'll make more. Pat's also put them on Facebook. You can get on Facebook and grab those verses as well, too. So if I do this, what happens? Verse 3, I'm like a tree planted by the rivers of water, bring forth its fruit and its season, whose leaves also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Go with me to Jeremiah 17, please. God refers to us a lot as this idea of a plant. Plants need watered. Plants need refreshed. I don't want to wither. I don't want to dry out. And this is what happens when you get yourself off the word. You start to wither and dry out. If, if I see a believer that's withering spiritually and drying out spiritually, I'm willing to bet they're probably really not in the Word. Because when you're in the Word, it waters you and refreshes you, and it brings forth fruit. Remember, the goal is fruit. John 15, Jesus says the goal is fruit. Remember, the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the goal. So if I want to produce fruit, I need to make sure I'm watered and I'm planted. How does that come in the Word? Look at Jeremiah 17, start in verse 5. This reminds me a lot of Psalm 1. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, makes his flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. He shall be like a shrub in the desert, and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, and a salt land which is not inhabited. Look at those words, 6. Desert, parched. Salt land, wilderness. I mean, you just see these plants drying up, and if you touch their leaves, they just crumble. Spiritually, that's how some of us are. There's no root. There's no depth. There's no refreshing. There's no water. We're just spiritually drying up. 
And we feel parched and dry and in the desert and the wilderness. Look at verse 7. Blessed, there's our word again, is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters who spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when he comes, but its leaf will be green. It will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. You are planted by the water. But look at verse 8. There's still times of anxiety. There's still times of fear. There's still times of drought. It's going to happen. Remember the story from Matthew where uh, Jesus talks about the parable of the wise man that built his house on the rock and the foolish man built his house on the sand. You remember the song from Sunday school, right? We forget in that parable, the same storm hits both people. Just because you're born again and saved doesn't mean you're not going to go through times of drought. You're not going to go through times of storm. It's going to happen. The catch is verse 8. When you're planted like a tree by the waters, your roots go out deep, and so therefore when the drought hits, you're rooted you're rooted in the Lord. I had something happen to me a couple months ago where I thought I had this thing kicked and, and I was fine. And it's small. I mean, it's really small in the whole scheme of eternity. So it happened, and I had to go to BG after it happened. So it's about 20, 25 minute drive to BG, and the whole way to BG, I'm just stewing. I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm bothered, frustrated. God, how could you? I started realizing this little event just made me realize that my roots were not as deep as I thought they were. This little event made me realize my roots were not grounded like I thought they were. I had to go through that to reveal sometimes how dry I really am. That's why verse 9 is the next verse. Look at verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So often we just jump right to that verse. Do you realize the context of that verse is this? There are going to be some people who are drying up spiritually and verse 9, they have deceived themselves to not even realize it. We're back to the car with the engine off, running off momentum, but nothing's happening. Oh, I'm great. People tell me that all the time. Hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. What's your definition of good? I'm good. I remember talking to a guy one time that I knew a little bit of the background, what was going on. He didn't come out here to church, but I knew him from a guy, from a guy type of story. And... Um, his son was going through a very, very, very difficult time. Marriage falling apart, life falling apart, everything falling apart. And so somebody said, hey, why don't you go up and talk to him and just see if you can encourage him. So I went up to him and started talking to him. And I said, how's it going? He goes, oh, man, it's going good. And I'm like, I know what's going on. I didn't say that it's going good. And I said, oh, good. Hey, how are the kids doing? He talked about his son. The son where everything is completely falling apart. He goes, oh, son, he's great. Job's going good. Got a brand new house. Things are great. I keep thinking, you have a completely different definition of good and great than I do. And I just wonder, how many times do we do that? How's it going? Oh, it's great. It's good. Are you planted by the water? Nope. Are you withering up? Yep. Then how is it good? Because nine, my heart is deceitful above all things. I have fooled myself into thinking that everything is great. Take a long, hard look sometimes and say, Lord, am I really rooted in you the way I'm supposed to be because I want to be planted, producing fruit, not withering because the times of drought will come. It's inevitable it will come. Jump back now to verse 4 of Psalm 1. We flip it around now. What are the ungodly like? The ungodly are not so, but like the chaff which the wind drives away. Chaff. If you ever grew up on a farm doing any type of bailing, you know what chaff is. I grew up doing straw, grew up doing hay. I, to this day, can still feel chaff down my back. I can remember when we were doing bailing that I would go through different stages, and I remember one stage that I basically put on a hazmat suit 
because I did not want any chaff. I would button up my shirt. Everything was covered up. Shirt under my dress shirt, gloves on, everything. That stuff still found a way to get down. The next season in utter rebellion, I think I bailed with the tank top on to basically say if it's going to get in there, what difference does it make? It just gets all over. The chaff blows around. Think that through for a second. The chaff blows around. The chaff is meaningless. The chaff is empty. The chaff is nothing. But it's always in motion. I remember Jacob Beelan one time telling the story about leaves. He says, think of the fall leaves. Constant motion, blowing around. Everywhere you go, leaves are blowing. It's just this fall thing. Constant motion activity, but yet those leaves are what? Completely, utterly dead. The leaves that are alive and strong are connected to the tree. The leaves that are dead are in constant activity and motion blowing around. I have seen some people, some Christians, that are in constant activity and motion, and they don't realize that they're spiritually dead and dying. They would never know it. Why? Because look how busy they are. Look at the constant activity. I have to be right with the Lord because I am blowing around all over the place. You're supposed to be planted. You're supposed to be planted. And just be careful. Do not correlate depth with Lord with activity. Do not correlate depth with the Lord with busyness. I go back to one of my favorite Oswald Chambers quotes. Jesus never walked around this earth in a sense of rush or busyness. And somehow we have reached this point as a society that the more busy and active we are, it's a sense of pride. How's it going? Oh, man, busy. Busy. Maybe you need to slow down and sit at the feet of Jesus. Can't. Too busy. Maybe we're missing something with that. Plant yourself by the river of water. Bring forth fruit in its season. See what the Lord God does. Don't be like the chaff that's the wind's driving away. Verse 5, therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. They don't have a leg to stand on. They're not righteous. I'm righteous, not by my own works or deeds. I'm righteous by what Jesus Christ did for me. So I can stand before the righteous God because Jesus Christ made me righteous. Once again, that's the gospel. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. You know, being ungodly, you can't be around the righteous. Now, we allow that in this world, because the Bible says don't judge anything before the time, but the reality is an ungodly person is not sneaking into heaven, folks. The righteous God sees this and knows this. It goes back to our first point. The Lord, verse 6, knows the way of the righteous. He knows those that have been made right through Christ. And how do we know that we've been made right? Because you see the fruit delighting in the law of the Lord, verse 2, meditating day and night, planted by the rivers of water, bringing forth fruit in its season. I'm not withering because I'm planted in Christ. What's the flip side look? Verse 1, walking in the counsel of the ungodly, standing in the path of sinners, sitting in the seat of the scornful. I'm like the chaff, driven away by the wind. Verse 5, I can't stand before the Lord because I'm not righteous. Folks, Psalm 1 has it all. If we could get Psalm 1, it would change everything in our lives. Last verse to share with you. It's from Psalm 63. The introduction to it says, Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So in the wilderness, in the dry times, what does he say? Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. In a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Folks, this world we live in is dry. My flesh longs for you. My soul thirsts for you and a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Now, careful. We are only what? I don't even know what today is. Are we 12th? Is it the 12th? 
Okay, today's the 12th. We're only 12 days into the new year. So we're still riding high on this whole New Year's thing, right? Okay. So it's easy at this point to say, yeah, that's right. Pastor James has got it. I'm going to go home. I'm going to read 20 chapters of the Bible a day. You may do that for a day. You'll be burned out by day two. I'll tell you that right now. What I'm asking you is this. First off, pray. Verse two. Lord, would my delight be in the law of the Lord? Lord, would you help me to meditate on it day and night? Just pray it. Learn how to pray through the scripture. Take Psalm 1 and just verse by verse pray through it. Lord, am I walking in the counsel of the ungodly? Am I standing in the path of sinners? Am I sitting in the seat of the scornful? Lord, my heart is deceitful. I may not even realize it. Am I delighting in you? Am I, am I being blown away like the chaff? Am I driven away? Lord, am I? The Lord leads you. Maybe even memorize Psalm 1. It's a great psalm. I'm just asking you for us to fully grasp and understand our psalms. Because remember, folks, we're in Psalms to March 5th of 2023. we got a lot of time left in psalms. Grasp it, get it, understand it, and say, Lord, I don't want to turn this into a have to. I don't want to turn this into, oh, I checked the weather, I don't love Jesus. No, that's not what I'm saying. I don't want you to turn it into, oh, I'm going to watch five minutes of the game today. Oh, nope, now I, I could have been saving the lost in Africa. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, Lord, instead of me going out and trying to fill the flesh, let me just meditate and chew and be blessed. Just be blessed. I tell you, folks, it's worth it. Delight yourself in the law of the Lord. Meditate on day and night. It goes back to the first verse we said, blessed. Oh, how happy. Oh, how happy. Worship team, you come forward here for the final song. Grab some of those prayer sheets, if you will, on the way out. If they are gone, we'll make some more copies, get some more out there. Like I said, Pat's putting them on Facebook. Um, Hey, thank you for coming out. A lot of sickness going around, a lot of cold going around. Appreciate you giving up some time on a Sunday morning to come out and hopefully be blessed in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, help us to do exactly what this verse says, to delight in the law, to delight in you, just being in your presence. Teach us to sit at your feet. I I go back to Mary and Martha. Mary chose the better thing. Be still and know that I am God. Lord, help us to learn that. In this world of crazy activity that we pride ourselves on, help us just to be with you. You are good and do good. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen.